Terra incognita speculativa. Terra incognita speculativa. Welcome to this, the very last Terra Incognita Australian Speculative Fiction Podcast. I'm your host, Keith Stevenson. Put simply, Terra Incognita is the best Australian speculative fiction read by the authors who created it. And please visit tisf.com.au for links to our featured authors' website and publications. For the past two and a half years, we've brought you the voice of contemporary Australian speculative fiction writing. The TISF project had a twofold objective to bring published stories to a wider public and give them a new life off of the printed page, and secondly, to record and archive the actual voices of Australian specfic writers telling their stories the way they intended. We hope you've enjoyed the tales on offer, and by way of a farewell, we have a special podcast tonight. Our print and ebook affiliated site, Cur de Leon, We'll be publishing an all-new collection of outer space tales called Anywhere But Earth in the second half of this year. And by way of a taster for that project, Wendy Waring will be reading her contribution to that collection called Alien Tears. Although originally from Canada, Wendy has made a home here in Australia and has been producing fiction with its own unique perspective for quite some time, as well as being an editor and a contributor to academic works. Her Anywhere But Earth story for TISF is a cautionary and chilling tale that just might persuade you that we'd all be better off not visiting alien planets. No one is waiting for me. No one would expect me. There's still nothing up here but unyielding stone. Across the plateau, that unnatural wind still whistles. Eternal peaks razor the immaculate sky. Nothing has changed. I have changed. I scuttle across the scree to wait at the portal for admission. Through the polished crystal, I watch a technician approach. Will my colleagues allow me this last farewell? Wordlessly, I am motioned in. From the observation window, alone, I peer at the off-world pods. They still huddle next to the aging hulk of the feeding station. Fifteen. Grey dust films the transparent walls and canopy we erected to shelter them. All fifteen are empty now. All, save one. This final casing holds the first of the bodies I touched. With my tail, I press the button that lifts the lid, then fall back, startled. Its hairs are the color of salt. The shift technician hurries forward and tells me that before dying, the pelts of some of the others also turned a blinding white. They always varied so, one from the other. Some skins were belly soft, where others crackled like sheddings. Of the two who woke, one was the color of chalk at dawn, the other a dusky brown. This last one is so purple as almost to be black. Why then have its hairs not turned emerald or cinnabar? My claws curve through a white and gray mat, 
so stark against the dark knoll of warm flesh, the body trembles slightly. It occurs to me, we never did determine whether this patch of hair was vibrissae or merely a protective covering. I turn to ask the shift technician, but the lab is empty. No one wants to witness this, my shame. I close the pod's lid and pace the room. Ranged in pockets all along the walls are the reports I lodged when I was head of research. Even now, as I contemplate the recordings sparkling in the racks, I wonder, how else could I have responded to this alien gift? And, and if I had denied it, as counsel bid, as Laro insisted, would my work team still welcome me to the early dawn shift? I activate a stone reader on the bench and drop one of my old logs into it. The earphones tickle my neck frill as I slide the pineal viewer into place over my eye. As I adjust vibration levels, my claws chitter against the stone. I search for Lauro's name. Soon my own voice and vibrations, younger, reverberate back to me through the stone. I hope Lauro will visit soon. So much has happened. I've so much to tell. Perhaps this dancing we will mate. Am I mad to hope? Am I mad? I do not expect a visit, of course. That would be perverse. But is it wrong to hope for one, to long for one? If one does not expect the gift, but rather laps at the rich foam of its possibility, surely this speculative thrill enriches any eventual donation. I play back the last convoluted phrase in the report I logged so long ago and smile grimly at my naive hopes. At best, Laro would have laughed at me. I search again at random for Laro's name. Head of research log. First basking. Personal observation. Shielded. I was alone, tending the pods when Laro arrived. I could feel a gaze through the observation glass. Laro. I exaggerated my care of each casing, poring over the scrabbled footprints on their strangely flat screens and noting hushed observations in my own log. I wanted Laro to find me thorough, arousing. When I finished my shift, my protective clothing slid from my back like a skin. I licked Laro on both raspy cheeks and then flicked my tongue a joyful third time. Laro, what a perfect accident. Will you stay? Will you eat with me tonight? Taulus, Taulus, slow down. Laro's forked tongue licked me delicately in return. Tell me about your subjects. They say you never leave the shelter. I hesitated for a moment, strangely reluctant. To talk of what I had learned about these strange donors, particularly to a friend so highly placed in council, could do me nothing but good. And yet, it had been a long time since Lauro had taken any interest in my work. We found the pods in the high valley just beneath the peaks of Gabardy, I said. We thought that they themselves had been gifted to us, the pods. Then two pods cracked open, and a being emerged from each shell. One had large thorax glands on its chest, but otherwise they appeared quite similar, You've heard their physiology described in stone? Laro nodded. 
For creatures without tails, they move surprisingly quickly. We watched them and admired their frenzied exploration of new terrain, their peculiar squeaking calls. Their frenetic scurrying seemed almost a, a kind of dance. But only two, Laro said. I thought there were more. There are seventeen in all. The two who emerged abandoned their pods on waking. And only one of these two, the one with larger thorax glands, has survived. Fifteen pods remain unopened. And these pods and the survivor pod, these are your charges. Yes, I said, already sure of the question that would follow. But, Talus, what is the nature of their donation? How do the creatures participate in the conferral? What do they gift? Laro hadn't disappointed me. Council would concern itself only with verified donation, but Ernest's conjecture would never hold Laro's interest, and the next part of my tale would offer my council friend little else. I silenced the stone. I can listen to my own youthful insouciance no longer. I glance around the deserted facility. My younger self had been right to hesitate. I would have been smarter to wait until I had something definite to say. But I was eager, curious. I was a fool. Unable to help myself, I start the stone again. We began simply. From time to time, we would leave foodstuffs, proteins, apiglucose, near their encampment. But sadly, this preliminary attempt at donation has failed. The couple took the nutrients, but then they refused to leave us with our pleasure. From what we could gather, they wanted to fix the time and place of our giving, and the content and return for each gift. Laro's long curved tail straightened in a convulsive twitch. Yes, I said, acknowledging the shudder. Barter. In my fieldwork, I had grown accustomed to such barbarities, but Laro seldom left the rarefied precincts of council. They thrust their poor objects at us, metals and some stiff yet flexible material, and clutched at us, pointing at their mouths. With our every gift, they became more and more incomprehensible. Did you spurn their botched gifts? Of course, Laro, of course. I tapped a foreclaw pensively on the ground. Then again, who is to say what a gift is? Lauro's face scales deepened to slate grey. I left my conjecture unfinished. I, I suspect that separation from the other pods distressed them, I continued, so they were brought to the plateau to see the pods, safely lined up in the warmth of the sun, with Tomako's people bent over their screens, tending them. Lauro's frill was vibrating. Another gaff. How could I forget? Lauro did not share my ease with Tanako and the folk of the bottom. In any event, I said, speaking quickly to cover the trail of my thoughtless blunders, the one with no chest glands rushed at the pods and squeaked. We did not understand. Our translators are not yet able to interpret their language. And then, quite suddenly, it died, clutching at its chest, without even offering itself up for conferral. Perhaps its own glands had been damaged during the voyage. Hmm. 
Pity. And the other one, the one you call thorax? That one fell to its knees. Fluid ran from its eyes, which it caught up in a cloth. It thrust its upper limbs at us, twisting and proffering the cloth. At that point, Tanako saw our error. We'd not even begun to receive their gift. Fluid? Of course! Laro's enthusiastic spasm was immediate. Yes, I agreed sullenly. Tanako is very clever. Laro touched a tail tip to my own. Someone from the bottom might show a crude inspiration, Talus, but your steady science will be showered with solid answers. Even as I record it, the warmth of Laro's praise fills me again, like a day of feasting. Perhaps my impolitic enthusiasms will be forgotten. They themselves produced their gift, I continued. We rushed forward to accept it, our tongues flicking at the minerals leaking freely from its body. The fluid ran and ran. We bore the visitor aloft on our backs, licking and rejoicing. But Taulus, Loro said, now that the gift has been identified and welcomed, why do you linger here? This is technician's work. You should be out in the field, searching for new forms of donation, enriching the bestowal. Lauro is right. How to justify staying here? And yet, I tried all the way back to my den and throughout our meal to persuade my friend that there might be more to their donation, and that, even if there were not, the attempt to discover it had a merit of its own. I fear I failed. Lauro came for certitude and left for the Ariège this morning, clutching a crystal detailing their primitive donation, while I remain nursing this glimmering curiosity shadowed by the desolate peaks of Gabardy. I silence the stone. I sit in the abandoned lab, listening to the wind buffet the cracked panes of the shelter. So many questions unanswered, so many not even posed. Before me, my first log as head of research lays nestled in its rack. I drop it in the reader and wait, motionless, for the uncertain solace of the past's vibrations. Head of research log, mid-shift, second dark. The pods gleam as I rush the pipette to the one whose eyes weep and harvest the precious liquid. Gathered into the ampulla, the fluid scintillates, such a delicate gift. Council has decreed that these off-world shells and their inhabitants should be brought to me, Taulus. And I will confess here on record, I am proud, more than proud, fascinated. We record the proportions of their liquid donation. So much manganese, so much sodium, so much ascorbic acid. Urum's team has found an application for the mucin. And while there is hardly enough of anything to be of use, it does not matter, of course, it is a gift. After primary processing, and we argued endlessly over the relative benefits of thin layer and high-pressured liquid chromatography, the gift heads for secondary processing. I glance over the figures at the end of each shift, but extraction is Orem's work. My task is to learn all I can of the donors. Until we learn to communicate with them, all is conjecture. Beneath our transparent canopy, their sun catchers gather bright solar donations. The lids of the pods darken and clear 
to a rhythm I have yet to document fully. In the hiatus between harvestings, I look out at the stranded plateau where we have settled the casings. Out there, the dry air bites my lungs and fills my head with eerie music. Do our visitors feel the desolate glory of this stony tableland? Will this high plateau, with its fine circle of peaks, suit them? Head of Research Log, shortly after chill. A discovery. The surface of their bodies gives forth a different fluid. Each time I press a sequence of buttons and cause images and sound to play, and I have noted carefully which ones, some of my charges begin to secrete another liquid. The first time I noticed it, I flicked my tongue over the glistening skin. It tastes different from the liquid that leaks from their eyes, much more strongly of minerals. Head of Research Log, First Light 99% water, with trace amounts of salt, potassium, glucose, lactic acid, ammonia, amino acids, and uric acid. I think this, too, is gift. I will request a ruling from Council. Head of Research Log, Second Dark. In the wild, we observed the two awoken ones closely before approaching them. In a few short days, their eyes sank deeper into their heads, their mouths grew pale and covered in mucus. They slept a dozen times a day. No doubt their journey was rigorous and taxing. As time passed, their bones stood out, and the pouch of their stomachs drooped. The pods still provided water. Did they need more nutrients? Perhaps this transformation had something to do with breathing our atmosphere. I was surprised that they were able to take to it. And yet, in comparison, the sleepers, whose pod lids are frequently raised, have crimson lips and little apparent slime. Head of Research Log, Second Dark. Council has decided not to wake the remaining fifteen, and I agree. Perhaps they have some peculiar dormancy period that should not be interrupted, and sudden rousing is what weakened the first two. And yet now, we must take the visitors as they are, with little opportunity to learn from them how best to receive their donation. No word yet from Council on the second fluid. I stop the stone and remember. Just before Council's decision, the awoken visitor with the thorax glands passed into a deep sleep. And shortly after their decision, thorax died without waking. Head of Research Log, Second Dark. By triggering certain files in what appears to be their own stone technology, liquid is conferred in greater quantity and its chemical composition changes. The creatures give us more. More ascorbic acid, more manganese. I wish, though, that I understood the content of the representations I trigger for them. Am I aiding the donation? Head of Research Log, First Light. Council grows impatient at the visitor's dumb passivity and has decided against accepting further fluid donation from them. Some doubt that even the first fluid was a gift. I must change their mind about the new fluids. I've even begun to hope that Lara will happen by. Head of Research Log, Second Dark. Personal Observation, Shielded.
I'm staying after my shift again. They give us so many fluids, and we refuse all but one. How can we learn if we do not receive with gratitude? Council disagrees. I wander among the casings. I give the night shift technician some errands to run, and I open the lid on the largest visitor. Spread across its pale torso is a thick, curling pelt. With stimulation, it excretes fluid under its arms, under its thorax glands, on its stomach. I use my tongue to collect this spurned offering. The more I lick, the more there is to lick, as if the creature is trying to convince me that my efforts are heeded. Are they trying to speak to me through these fluids? On my own time, I've decided, I will chart their variations. Head of Research Log, First Light No word from Laro. Head of Research Log, Personal Observation, Shielded As the sun rises and my shift starts, I find myself wondering, is not the real gift to be found on the trembling surface of their bodies? In the hiatus between harvesting them, I visit the visitors. Their bodies speak a curious language. Each time I open a lid, their skin arrests me. It is so malleable, so soft. The finest hairs cover it. Little macules of brown and red dance across its surface. The gentlest touch sets them shivering. I will not speak to my team of it. No doubt they would find me ridiculous. If the second fluid does not interest them, would this? No. No. Head of Research Log. First Light. Personal Observation. Shielded. Laro visited again yesterday. I felt a wave of disapproval through the observation glass, and when I left my charges to the shift technician, Laro awaited me. Council has decided, no doubt with Laro's encouragement, that I should be sent down into the scree of the bottom to study the donation patterns of the old colonies. I've been demoted and betrayed. After this announcement, Laro left, declining even to stop for a meal. I stood for a long while alone in observation, watching my charges through the window. Head of Research Log, Second Basking, Personal Observation, Shielded. My last shift. I am bound for the valleys. I remain long after the technicians have left. For a final time, I lap up mineral moisture. My favorite pod, I leave until last. This visitor's integument flushes a bright pink when I gather the gift. We may not have deciphered their speech and have failed, perhaps, to interpret their systems of representation, but here is a kind of language, one I feel sure I understand. The delicate dawn of the skin announces, Here is my gift. While we have never determined a use for the thorax glands, I have found the moisture that gathers in the creases around them delectable. I drink the rich minerals and take my time ensuring that the fork of my tongue loses no drop. I am about to leave, to bid goodbye to all my charges, when my favorite begins to undulate. 
concerned, I return to the pod and open its lid. A glistening, like a rare dew in rock shadow, issues out of its fleshy hillock. Between its crenulated ridges is a viscous water. My tongue darts at the strange new fluid until I can drink no more. I have lapped up the sad nectar of farewell. I will not submit it to chromatography. I stop the stone and put the reader away. I open the last pod. My claws chitter against handholds not formed for my grasp. Inside, the visitor's chest no longer swells and subsides. Its dark skin is the gray of a riverbed stone, dry in the cold air. Their gift? I will never know now beyond doubt what it was. Their strange, blunt tongues will never lap my face. An alien emotion wells up in my chest, threatening to burst out of me. Yet how do I release it? Outside, the wind is still whistling. A strange, unfathomable music fills my ears. One by one, I drop my logs into disposal until the shards of my lost words fill its mute cylinder. I close the pod's lid. The darkened casing clicks shut. This month's review book is This Green Hell by Greg Beck. The Alex Hunter novels are a lot of fun. The first two, Beneath the Dark Ice and Return of the Prophet, were reviewed in earlier episodes of TISF. And book three, This Green Hell, picks up where we left off, with super-soldier Captain Alex Hunter experiencing more and deeper rages as the powers he's inherited through the Arcadian project continue to grow in unpredictable ways. Things are getting decidedly dicey for Alex, with the R&D boys pressing his commanding officer, Colonel Jack Hammerson, to order Hunter onto the dissecting table. Luckily, there's another emergency which brings into play Alex's one-time lover, Amy Weir, who he saved in book one. It seems there's something nasty lurking down in a South American jungle. Think Ebola virus times, oh, a million? And people are dying in ways too horrible to mention. But don't worry, there's plenty of description just to help you get the picture. Alex and his team are deployed after a group of green berries on mission down there get fragged. But there's more to this virus than meets the suppurating, discoloured eye, which leaves Alex Hunter fighting not only for his own life, but for the life of those he holds most dear in his hands. Greg Beck returns to the world of Alex Hunter with great gusto. As with the other books, there's fantastic research woven into the story. It seems Greg really loves to throw together facts from all over the place and mix them in with a generous dollop of action and what if. It's a winning combination. But over and above the action and the current threat, there's the continuing story of Alex's development, the interest Mossad has in him, and Alex's own untenable position with a very secret project that spawned his amazing powers.
That's what gives this story real depth and interest long after the current threat is put to rest, and it's what will make me rush out to get book four. This Green Hell is a smart, delightful read with a big heart. Four stars. This Green Hell is published in Australia by Pan Macmillan. You have been listening to Terra Incognita Australian Speculative Fiction Podcast. Visit tisf.com.au for links to the featured author's websites and for details of the publications. Stories are copyright by the author. Book reviews are copyright Keith Stevenson, 2011. This podcast is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 2.5 Australian license. See our website for details. <laughs>